I was just about to start this by myself and say, 45 minutes ago, Pope said, give me 15 minutes. <laughs> I know. I ran into a, I had a meeting, and then I got my car, and then I had to have another phone uh, phone conversation meeting with somebody from head office. And then I had to deliver something to Moose Winooski's uh, for an upcoming golf tournament tomorrow. It's tough being you is what you're saying. It is. Okay. I live a tough life, Michael. I promise, Christopher, I will not take a lot of your time on this. Okay, coming down in three, two. You always confuse me when you don't say one. Oh, one. OHL Hockey is back. This is the Farwell and Pope Podcast. Originating from the 570 News Studio in Kitchener. Here are your hosts, Mike Farwell and Chris Pope. Poper, couple of guys departing the Ontario Hockey League for the greener pastures this week of the CIS. Luke Richardson, former Rangers goalie, off to Queens. And maybe a little more surprising, Zachary Roberts says so long to the Storm and joins former Storm coach Sean Camp with the Guelph Griffins. Would you want to play for that Guelph Storm team this year? hey Just saying. Shots fired. Um, hey, there is life after junior hockey. And as we uh, saw on last week's podcast, there is area for you to uh, advance your career past university into the pro ranks, a la Jake Henderson. Um, I love the CIS way. Um, you get some school paid for, but I don't mind what Henderson did either. And like you talked about, um, when you have a chance to go pro, he wants to take it and see if hockey still has some years left for him. And then afterwards, after his pro career, then he can go back to school. But I, uh, I like these guys going CIS, whether it's just to get the education or whether they still have pro aspirations that uh, CIS, sorry, U Sports League has uh, come a long way from what it used to be. There's some quality hockey players in that league. And I'm happy for Luke Richardson to head over to Queens, team up with former Kitchener Ranger Mason Kahn coming off a of Queens Cup. And uh, it gives Richie a chance to play uh, as a starting goaltender. I think Eric Ming might still be over there at Queens too, or maybe he's already graduated through, but I know he went that way. And I have to get used to calling it U Sports, so thank you for the reminder. The old guy in me not only has a hard time with that, calling it U Sports instead of CIS or OUA for crying out loud, but the old guy in me also wishes, and it's just the old guy, the, the parental influence, I guess, that would love to see the kids get their education and then go pro like do the schooling now while you're kind of in that rhythm and in that routine you're still going to be only 23 24 when you graduate and you've got how many years you can go and play pro if everything works out i i think that's the old guy in you because i don't think you you don't have many years after that that's that's your prime age nowadays but there are guys you play in so young though yeah but you 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 can play in europe until you're you're 40 yeah but these guys don't want to play in europe they want to make the show that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to play in the National Hockey League, and you can't afford to wait until you're 25 to start playing because there's been six years of kids coming up behind you that are taking your spots, that are younger, their body's healthier, and they have more energy. The, the game is so young. That's why we're seeing all these RFAs in the National Hockey League just sitting there waiting because they know that, hey, I need my ticket now. I can't wait till I'm 28 to get a ticket because by the age of 28, 30, I might be out of the league. 
I'll give you that. I do look at the money that's available in Europe right now and the longer career you can have there as sort of my benchmark. And let's be brutally honest and brutally fair in this, okay? Of the three players that we've been talking about going back to last week's podcast, Jake Henderson, Luke Richardson, Zachary Roberts. Honestly, brutal realism here. Are we ever going to see either one of those three in the National Hockey League? No, but I also think that we tend to glorify Europe, and you and I have talked about it on and off this podcast and off the air, in that it's the way to go. It's so smart. You make some money, you tour around a beautiful part of the world, you play hockey, you meet a hot Swedish girl, and you retire. (laughs) However, what we tend to forget is that each team over there only has a certain amount of import spots. In the best leagues overseas, those import spots are usually reserved for former NHLers at the end of their career or guys like Michael Latta from here in Waterloo who played a couple years in the show and now they want to still play pro hockey, so they go over there. A big draw for those European teams is that Michael Latta has played in the National Hockey League. But there's only a couple import spots. You have to be so good to get that team to cut one of their former NHL imports. Otherwise, you're going to be locked in one of the lower leagues, like we see maybe where Gustav Franzen or Cedric Schiemens is playing right now, and you don't get paid the amount of money that we think to make it worthwhile. I don't know if it is worthwhile to go over there, play hockey, and make forty grand. It's... It's not as glorious as we tend to, for, to think about because we look at it as, yeah, you're playing in the KHL or you're playing in the Swedish Elite League. Meanwhile, you're playing in a third tier, traveling around on a bus that looks like it came straight out of flash shot. Yeah, you, you raise an excellent point in that regard. Money notwithstanding, I am certain that not all of these lower tier teams are providing players an experience that is the lap of luxury that we believe it to be at the Swedish elite level or at the top of the KHL for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go back. We talked about when we, uh, I, I don't want to say relaunched the Far Wimapo podcast a few weeks ago, um, when we were discussing Joseph Garessa's decision. I got to give props out to somebody who we both know sent me a message on um, Twitter and said, Hey, pal, the starting salary or the max salary for a rookie in the East Coast Hockey League, I said was about $1,000. He said it's just over 500 bucks a week. a week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't, it just goes to show that, you know, when you say you play pro hockey, there's pro hockey, but then there's pro hockey. Speaking of Twitter, at underscore Chris Pope, at Farwell underscore OHL, and talking about living all of these dreams. Our feature interview in this podcast is one, don't fast forward yet, stop that, but you're going to want to listen to every word of it because it's a guy that had it all laid out for him, a second rounder into the National Hockey League after a very good junior career, and things didn't exactly work out. That story still coming, but... One other one we must touch on that's kind of simmering in the league right now as we get close to opening weekend poker is the Guelph Storm. And I'm just going to point the finger right at the voice of that team, Larry Malott, who on Twitter himself earlier this week was talking about whether or not, or asked the question of fans whether or not it was worth it. Was the run that the Storm went on last year 
worth it. You already fired the shot about would you want to play for that Storm team this year? I know it's tongue-in-cheek, but it begs the question. If you're a Storm fan and you are ready to start this season with the roster you're seeing in front of you in the toughest division in the CHL, can you answer the question if it was worth it or not? I can answer that question. I just want to go back to one thing real quick, though. You mentioned um, me you know, throwing some shade at the storm. I want to say, if I'm a rookie or a second-year player in this league, yes, I do want to play on that team. If I'm an overager, probably not. Um, you asked the question, was the run worth it? And I will answer your question with a question. Did they raise a banner? It's funny you should say that because all I was going to say is I hope we don't have to be there when they do. Do you remember when Jeff O'Neill, oh my goodness, I still can't, I think the ceremony's still going on. I think I was still working with Torch at the time too, but they had a ceremony for Jeff O'Neill that went on and on and on and on. So all I can say is if it happens to be a Ranger Storm game when they raise the banner, raise the damn banner and get on with the game. Hoi-yi-yi. They also did a parade, which I loved. You did not. Um, but, yes, it's worth it, 100%. They raised the championship banner, or they will, I guess. Therefore, it is worth it. No questions asked, no debate at all. If you don't think a championship is worth it, and what we're talking about is a couple of rough years, you're wrong. Because they're champions. They will always be champions. Therefore, it's worth it. You touched on two things there that I think are critical in all of this. My first gut instinct was, no, it wasn't worth it because you didn't win a Memorial Cup. But to your point, the banner that goes up is the Ontario Hockey League Championship, and that is absolutely nothing to sneeze at. You were the best last year out of all 20 of these teams. The other thing, though, and you said if it means you're not going to be very good for a couple of years. I wonder if we can ask this question again or say we don't have enough information to answer it yet because what if it's more than a couple of years? What if it's four years or five years? I know the cycle suggests it shouldn't be, but what if it is? Then are you looking back at that championship banner from 2019 and saying, boy, oh boy, I wish we didn't suck for so long since then? I'll ask you this. The last Rangers Ontario Hockey League championship. 2008. Yeah. Was it worth it? Ah, boy, you know what? (sighs) Because they haven't won since. Yeah, and (sighs) it's tough. I think given the The context, yeah, well, given the context, as hosts that year, absolutely, right? Everything's happening there at the odd. It's a game seven versus Belleville of all things at the odd to win the championship. I suppose so. But you can, you know, as well as I do, we hear from the nation a lot and it is a restless bunch these days. The Midwest championship of 2018 was, was just a, just a little grain of, of, of sugar after a decade of, you know, being in the wilderness. A hundred percent. But the answer still is yes, because you raised the banner, you were an Ontario Hockey League champion. There was only one champion every year. If you win, that is reaching your goal. The Memorial Cup may be the second hardest trophy in sport, or maybe hockey anyway, to win outside of the Schmaltz Cup. You only have five years if you're lucky in this league to take a run as a player. You might get one run out of it. There's been some great players in this league that haven't won an Ontario Hockey League championship, Connor McDavid being one of them. 
if you have an opportunity to win a championship, push your chips in. Don't go halfway. Because when you go halfway, you're stuck in mediocrity forever. And who wants that? The goal is to win a championship. You want it. Who cares what you sacrifice? You can get all that back. Figure it out later. You got a ship. Our feature interview in this week's episode of the Farwell and Pope podcast is about a guy who did not win an OHL championship or a Memorial Cup, but left this league on a trajectory to maybe win a Stanley Cup. He was that good, he was regarded that highly, and he was drafted 40th overall. Kitchener kid whose hockey career was derailed by mental illness. His important story and some of the stories he shares about his journey are words that you are going to want to let sink in today. Steve, a lot of people that uh, listen to this podcast are fans of the Ontario Hockey League, managers, coaches, players. Uh, And I think that's why this message would resonate the most, because we probably all play the same game. I know I do, having covered this league for as long as I have. I look for players on the ice, and almost every year it's like, that one's going to make it, that one's going to make it. Oh, no, people think he's going to make it, but he's not. I always test myself against where they end up getting drafted if they do. Did I get that pick right or not? And I look back at your junior days, and in your third and final OHL season with the Kingston Canadians, you scored 32 goals, 75 points, and you would have looked at the stats on that and said, yeah, this is a guy that's going to make the jump, and then second round, 40th overall to the Washington Capitals. A lot of people would look at that and say, this is a guy that's living out the dream. Was that how you felt at the time? Well, that's a good question. I'd have to say I did have, I did have swagger when I was drafted, and uh, I felt good about myself getting drafted, and absolutely that was a dream come true. But uh, after games and when I had my private time alone, I would suffer at times, and I, I call that wearing the mask, and we're very good with... When it comes to mental illness, what you get very good at doing is preparing for games, coming to the rink with that game face on that you've been coached and... And, and taught how to be prepared to play with your game face. And we hear that t- term a lot, get your game face on. And that ends up being your mask. So you learn to compartmentalize and block everything out. And it's really only after games when you go home, and that's when I, that you suffer. And that's really when I had a lot of my biggest problems, when I was uh, at home alone. And then... What ends up happening, in in my case anyways, I dealt with it on my own. I didn't share it with anybody, and that was a big mistake. You need to, with mental illness, you have to be able to share your feelings, and back then there was no avenue to do that. Okay, I want to come back to what those moments, those alone moments were like in, in just a second, but let's step back then from where you were at on paper when people that follow this league would look at you and say, here's a guy that's got it made, second round, 40th overall to the Capitals, kids on his way you talk about that game face and how you kind of learn that game face it's part of almost your hockey training let's go back to the very beginnings and those roots at Queensmount Arena in Kitchener where along the lines did you see was was this always happening was that game face being developed along with your hockey skill yes I talk on that I touch on that in my uh in the book Shattered Ice in the first chapter Queensmount Arena I talk about how my first house league team was called the Barons, and we won the city championship. And I remember being at that age, going to McDonald's with my father after the championship victory, 
and celebrating that win and just loving the feeling of winning. And uh, yeah, I, I, I just loved competing. I loved winning. So, and you, I have a line in the book that always resonated with me with coaches say, you have to be hungrier than your opponents. Now, I just think about that phrase. And we still, you still hear it at all levels of, of sports and it's particularly hockey. You have to be hungrier. So that was that drive. You know, you, I'm, I, or your coach would challenge you. I want you to take your opponent on one-on-one and you win that battle because you're hungrier to get it done than that your opponent is. So, yeah, I think that starts at a young age. And I coach myself now. And I've uh, last year I coached a minor peewee team, and we were already you know, talking in those terms. And it is part of the the culture of of the sport for sure from a young age. That makes me think of another phrase I hear often in this game: you have to hate losing more than you love winning. And you just talked about how much you loved winning. Did you hate losing more? That's a great question. You're right. I did. I hated losing, and I think that's. Uh, Certainly a characteristic of someone who's very competitive and uh, loves winning. You do hate losing. And not only do you hate it, you don't like the feelings you get from it. And it it festers. I think some kids, uh, you know, in some certain sports, um, some individuals, you know, they might lose a game and then they're on to the next thing. And five minutes later, they're thinking about something else. But in my case, I know it's true, if I lost a game, it would bother me. And maybe for a long time after the game, I'd still be thinking about that loss and what I could have done to change things. And you almost take that home with you. And again, it festers and you start starts to kind of eat at you and you can't wait to play again so you can go out and fix that loss with a win. Let's go back now to those quiet moments you talked about. And again, I, I want to kind of scratch beneath the surface here because what we see in players that we watch in this league obviously their performance is on the ice and more than that too the numbers that they're putting up who's got the most goals who's got the most points what are they doing out there on the ice when you were off the ice and you were in those moments where you were alone and struggling what was it like were you at your billet family's house, in a room by yourself, in the dark, thinking? Like, what what do those moments mean? What did they look like? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, It did start in junior hockey, and I'd say uh, when I really first noticing it was in my second year because I signed a contract with the Capitals right after my first training camp. So that increased the pressure. And the pressure, and I do say it's a bit of, it's a self-induced pressure cooker, partly from tra- uh, signing that contract and then expecting more yourself, knowing there's more eyes watching you, kind of watching how you're playing. So after games, a lot of times my stomach would just be really upset. I'd be in knots, and then that causes you some mental anguish, and I'd usually go home, and uh, I'd had a lot of stomach problems back in those days after games where, uh, yeah, I'd go home and find a quiet place in the home and in the billets house and, I didn't share it with them, that's for sure, and I didn't share it with my parents who were you know, three hours away living up here in Kitchener and I was in Kingston. And um, different times after games, if the guys were going to do something as a group, I couldn't do it because I felt ill, physically ill inside and I had to go home. So I just had to say, sorry guys, I can, I'm not coming out tonight and I'm going home. And I didn't tell share it with them either. So what ends up happening at, at times, you know, in this you're, you're with your group, you want to be with the boys, and they'd say, oh, come on, come on out, and you say, I can't, and you wouldn't tell them why, and they might look at you like, what's, you know, what's his problem? 
but I dare I wasn't going to share it with them. So then you go home, and that kind of affects you at times with the boys too in the dressing room, and uh, it just starts to eat at you, and it becomes uh, something you deal with on your own and. You kind of, like I said, you compartmentalize, and when the next day comes, you go to practice and you start over again. Was that routine, getting back to practice, recovering from that loss with a win, was that part of your coping strategy at the time? Yeah, I think that was. I think being at the arena was part of it. Just being at the arena with the team preparing for games, practices, that's the safe zone is what I like to call it. So that that's your support network and your, 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 at the time your social safety net, especially moving away from home for junior when you're 16, 17, and your family is often a long ways away and you have limited resources available to talk to. And especially in those days when we really didn't encourage young players to talk to people, you... Uh, the arena was the one place where you could feel safe because you were with your teammates and your coaches and the trainers. So that was the the support group. So definitely that uh, made you feel better about things when you're with that group. You just said something, Steve, that I think is so important. Those days. It's hard for me to even wrap my head around this to some degree now in 2019 because one thing I think we are doing well is talking about mental illness struggles that we're having mentally and what that does to us. But I don't think we all fully understand it yet. I don't think we all understand what the signs are. But we're talking right now about a time in the mid to late 1980s when you were a rising hockey star. So you've got, I think, two two issues happening. One is something is going wrong with you. You know it, but you're in the game of hockey and the machismo of hockey says you don't talk about these things. And the other part of it is mental illness. That's not really something we're talking about 30 years ago. Is that when, when you look now back at Steve Seftel of the mid to late 1980s, are those some of the struggles that you were seeing? Yeah, absolutely. And I, d- I can't tell you a story. I went to see a doctor about my stomach problems. And uh, basically I left there with the kind of um, recommendation that there, I can't find anything wrong with you and, you know, it's just, you know, keep an eye on it, but there's physically nothing wrong with you. But it was really a mental problem. That didn't even come up in the conversation. So I, you know, Michael Landsberg talks about sick, not weak. That's, you know, that was that didn't exist in the 80s when I was playing junior. So when I left the doctor's office that day, I thought I was just weak. And like you mentioned the machismo and the, that comes along with being an athlete, especially a hockey player. I left that doctor's office thinking, well, it's me. I've got a weak mental weakness, um, so i got to deal with this internally, and I dare not share it because I must be the only one that feels this way. So I will say two years ago is when, when I was in therapy. Um, my therapist said to me, I want you to go home and watch Michael Landsberg on YouTube. So I went home and watched his video and I, well, he's a really good speaker. And I, I heard him say, sick, not weak. And I wrote it down because it was the first time in my life I thought, wow, it's not me. It's not weakness. It's an illness. And I, I almost felt a sense of relief, which is the reason I wrote it down. I was so excited to hear that term. And I wanted to start using it on social media because, and now, I mean, we see it everywhere, sick, not weak. But it's so true. It's not, you're not weak. You're sick. And but we didn't talk in those terms 
back then. Are we doing better in those terms now? We're doing better talking about it. I think we need to do a lot more implementing programs and systems that can become standard for, especially in, ho- in, in leagues, whether it's the Ontario Hockey League, the American Hockey League, even the National Hockey League. Where I think we're just scratching the surface because it is so, f- it's still pretty raw. And, um, you know, Bell Let's Talk and, and certain initiatives like that are leading the charge to get people talking. I guess that's really become the first step. And, and people like Michael Landsberg and myself writing this book, listening to him and, and some other athletes like Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan when they started talking about mental illness, made me, gave me the confidence to, to start talking about it myself, which I wouldn't have done um, until about a year ago. So I think, I don't, I'm not going to say we're doing enough, but I think at least the ball is rolling now and it's gaining momentum. Was there a watershed moment for you, Steve, when you personally came to the realization of what your struggles were all about and maybe made the decision to get into therapy or whatever that might have been? Was there a moment where it just hit you that this is what my problem is or I need to get in front of this problem? Yes, uh, that's a tough story to tell, but um, I put my family through a very difficult 24 hours when... um, I wasn't sure if I was going to see tomorrow. Um, and boy, it was a tough 24 hours for the whole family. And, um, you know, my wife came to me the next day after that period and she said, you've lived like this for the last 50, uh, 50 years. Do you want to live the next 50 that way or do you want to be different? And I said to her, I want to be different. And part of it was for her and my two boys, Calvin and Nick. I just, I wanted to change for them and for, but more importantly for my, you got to want to change for yourself too, which is probably the most important. So what did change look like? Uh, I got, uh, I went to see a psychotherapist. I went to a psychologist. So I, they taught me some cognitive behavior therapy because I dealt with, uh, I have OCD, which my OCD leads to anxiety. And then my anxiety can lead to the most terrorizing form of anxiety, which is panic. So when you have panic attacks, you're completely lose control of your uh, mental being. Like you just, you feel like you're being, you're going to die and you're you're being chased by a tiger and you just have to escape even though, but it's a perceived danger that really doesn't exist. And that's where the cognitive behavior therapy helps. Um, I did go see my family doctor as well, who, I'm on medication now, which certainly helps. And I went to see a naturopath, and I thought that was really critical also because I guess the one thing he helped me with is uh, got my nutrition in order. And certainly nutrition's a big part of it, and just getting you know, getting proper uh, food into your body and proper rest and just taking better care of myself day to day, which also includes exercise. So a lot of it's stuff we hear about all the time, like those things, but then uh, the other aspects that I mentioned earlier, you got to go find that help through therapists and uh, medical practitioners. That 24-hour period you mentioned a moment ago, uh, were you contemplating suicide? Yes, it's hard to uh, come to terms with, uh, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to say that, and uh, yes. Was that the first time you had? I had thought about it before, but I never... 
never uh, kind of got to that level. So this is all in the relative recent past of Steve Seftel's life. What about that intervening 20 to 25 years from the time that you were that aspiring NHLer, uh, a notable OHLer, and you were dealing with all of these demons essentially on your own? How do you look at that period of your adult life? Uh, uh, I was quick to anger. Um, I was, and then that being quick to anger is almost a protective me- mechanism you develop. Uh, I didn't, I went inward with most of my um, mental illness. I drove everybody away, convinced myself that uh, everybody wanted to get to, was, uh, nobody was there to help me and I was doing this on my own and it was going to be on my own permanently. And I struggled through it really, it was just with my wife is the only one I really shared it with. And it certainly affected some relationships uh, with my family. And But it wasn't until I came forward to the family and asked for help that it actually turned things around. And that includes the hockey family. How did the hockey family respond to you? One of the first person, persons I reached out to was Doug McLean, my former coach. And whether this was a kind of pivotal moment because... I'd only shared the mental illness with uh, friends, some real close friends in my immediate family. And Doug was the first person outside of that circle that I went to talk to. And I uh, sent him a message. The book was well underway, and I asked him if he'd write the foreword for Shattered Ice because he was my favorite coach I ever played for back in Baltimore. Caught him off guard because I hadn't talked to him in years. And uh, so he said, why don't you come down to Toronto and we'll talk about it. So I went and met him and... We met for lunch, and right off the gate, I was trying to explain my situation with the mental illness, and I couldn't even get the words out because I didn't know how to talk about it at that point, really, with anyone. And on the you know on the the bigger scale, I was still it didn't feel right, and I think that's part of the stigma when we hear talk about the stigma. It shouldn't be that way that people feel really uh, apprehensive and. And insecure and, and, and guilt. There's guilt that comes with it. You shouldn't feel that way when you're talking about mental illness, but that's the stigma. It causes that. So I was just stammering and sputtering and trying to get the words out, which I did. It took some time. And then once I got the words out, he, he, he was, uh, I remember he said to me, I wish I could have helped you. I wish I knew. But I said to him, you know, back then I would have never shared it with you. So, you know, don't feel bad because you, there's no way you would have known because I, wasn't, I wouldn't have told you as a player back in those years. So we had a really good discussion, and he uh, wrote the forward. And then from there, as the book started to gain momentum, uh, it's just been a whirlwind this summer with uh, <laughs> getting back together and communicating with my old buddies in Kingston, my old buddies in Baltimore, some of the guys in Washington, and you know, I am... Um, from the Scott Pearson, Steve Malte, um, Scott Metcalf, Jeff Chikrin, Chris Clifford. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun summer reconnecting with some of the players I haven't talked to for a while. Did it catch you off guard, Steve, that they reached out, that you were able to pick up those relationships, perhaps where they left off when your hockey days were done, playing anyway? It caught me off guard because I had convinced myself that the hockey world had abandoned me. And they hadn't, but that was the mental illness kind of manifesting itself. And once uh, 
Neil, now that I'm seeing things clearer and I have a better understanding of what I'm dealing with, I'm not surprised because the hockey family is a tight one and they do stick together. And that's that's the com- part of the camaraderie that guys always talk about. You have each other's, you hear that term, We ha- I have your back. Hockey players always have each other's back. So once I really started to think about it, it made sense to me. Of course, these guys are going to be here for me. That's the way hockey players are. I want to jump back half a step again just to Doug McLean and his writing the foreword to your book, Shattered Ice, because he says in that foreword that in all of his decades in the game coaching and as a general manager, you stand out as one of his favorites of all time to have coached. I had the opportunity to cross paths with Doug. We were both working at Sportsnet. He always referred to me as the little guy from Kitchener, but in an affectionate way. (laughs) That was Doug. He sometimes would come across as gruff on the air, but great guy, big heart. Mm -hmm. Tell me a story about being coached by Doug. Well, I can tell you one funny story um, that the the listeners will like. We had, so the year we had him, it was we have, were playing the Adirondack Red Wings in the first round of the playoffs, and Doug, uh, the, the the Red Wings were favored in the series going into it. They were defending Calder Cup champions, so we had them down three games to two coming home, and really had them on the ropes. We were giving it to them pretty good in the series, and like all series in the playoff time, when the when the energy ramps up, we were really it was a bitter rivalry, and at that point we really did disliked each other quite a bit. And Barry Melrose was coaching the Adirondack Red Wings at that point. And he was a, he's a fiery guy himself and as a coach. So we're playing game six in Baltimore, and a melee starts in front of our bench. Both teams get involved, and Barry Melrose starts uh, screaming at Doug. And Doug is, Doug is never at a loss for words. I'll say one thing about him. He's got as sharp a tongue as there is out there in the hockey world, and especially from the coaching side of things. You're never going to get the last word with him either. So Barry's giving it to him. So Doug got right up in his face as well, and that just infuriated Melrose. So he started banging on the glass partition separating, separating the benches, and he started rocking, rocking it back and forth. He hit it hard enough that the, the entire piece of glass came dislodged between the two benches while they still continued berating each other. And then what was even added to it, this, the fans behind the benches were hammering on the glass as well, trying to uh, infuriate Barry Melrose even further. So what ended up happening is Lance Roberts was the referee. He, he kicked uh, Barry Melrose out of the game, but Doug got to stay in. And uh, we won the series on that day and moved on to the semifinals against the Rochester Americans. Yeah, I really enjoyed playing for Doug. Um, He's a player's coach. I say in my book, he's a coach that made me, some coaches make you just want to run through walls for them and just do, do you want to, you want to win for the coach. And sometimes you'll hear that players will say, or you'll hear them say, oh, the team quit on the coach. And I, fans, you know, you might wonder, what does that mean? They quit on the coach. It's kind of hard to wrap your head around that one, but when players say I'll do anything for a coach, that always made more sense to me, and that's the way I felt with Doug McLean. Like I would, I wanted to win to make him happy. I guess that's kind of the greatest compliment I could give him, and I would do anything for him as the leader. 
we still see Lance Roberts around rinks in the OHL as an off-ice official. Yes, I've bumped into him in the KW rinks on a few occasions. Uh, when you think he's also observing the uh, young referees as well. Yeah, I've seen him in, uh, in town a few times. And you'd think Barry Melrose would have learned his lesson, because didn't he and Pat Burns get into that yeah. in the 93 Leafs-Kings uh, series? <laughs> yes, I have a total vi- uh, picture of that in my mind. I can see Pat Burns storming off the bench, uh, pointing at him. Yeah, you're right. And that's uh, There was no pane of glass, really, no, not separating that one. those teams no. in the gardens. Yeah, That's right. <laughs> uh, back to Doug McLean. Do you remember a conversation with him when you lined up against his team in the National Hockey League? Ah, uh, yeah. So this is a really good story. My first NHL, so the following season after this uh, big win over the Adirondack Red Wings, Doug left the Capitals organization and he followed Brian Murray to Detroit. So the the Capitals, both ex-Capitals coaches, were now in Detroit with the Red Wings. I get called up the following season, January 91, for my first NHL game. And it's at the Joe Lewis Arena against the, the Red Wings. So I was skating around in warm-up. I was nervous, very nervous. I remember my na- legs were shaking. felt like I was skating over ski moguls. It was really bizarre feeling. But just the nerves playing with your mind. And I saw Doug on the home bench, and I thought it would be a good strategy. I'll go say to him, hey, you know, just say hi, and he'll calm my nerves with a way to go, kid. Congratulations, Stevie, you made it. Good for you. Have a great game tonight. So I do a lap, and I come across the center red line, and I'm looking we make eye contact as I'm coming across the center red line and I glide over to the Detroit bench and here it, I can see he's going to say something. So I lean in with one ear, kind of looking at him and he says, Hey, Seth, I told Probert you're the goon called up from Baltimore. <laughs> and I was like, as I'm gliding by, I just went, well, you said what? Like to who? Probert? Like you, you gotta be kidding me. I, I, I couldn't believe it. So then I was, I did another lap and I thought, is he serious or is he just playing with my mind here? Is he just trying to stir me up? So then I just stayed away from him. I didn't go back to him again for the rest of the warm-up. But then we go, just to add to it, we go back to the room for after warm-up, and Terry Murray was our head coach going against his brother Brian, which was a, a unique experience too. And we go back to the line, the room, and, and Terry says starting lineup is Hunter, Seftel, Druce, so Dale Hunter, John Druce, and myself. So I'm starting the game which was a thrill, and I'm out there on the, the blue line, and part of the preparation players do is you want to know, who am I up against here? So as a left winger, I know I'm going to be up against Detroit's right winger, and I look across to the other blue line, and there's number 24, Bob Probert. Come on. And now my mind starts racing again. I'm thinking, oh, geez, maybe he really did tell Probert I'm the goon from Baltimore, and I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> at all. Um yeah, I wasn't. And uh, so we lined up, skate to skate, stick to stick, and uh, <laughs> my mind was racing. Long story short, as the puck got drum- dropped, dumped into our zone, we did collide lightly. But I read his book years later, and what he said in his book, Bob Probert, is that if, if you were a rookie called up and didn't have a reputation as someone who deserved the opportunity to fight him, then you weren't getting the time of day from him. So... As it turned out, I had nothing to worry about. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. That is <laughs> a great story and sounds just like McLean, eh? Yeah. Just like Mac, for sure. Yeah. You dropped a name in there, I can't let go unchecked with some sort of uh, story maybe associated with it, Dale Hunter, who, mm-hmm. of course, is the stuff of legend in the Ontario Hockey League with yeah. the London Knights, as competitive as they come and has made a, a great name for himself as a head coach in the O. What was it like being a teammate? 
He's an incredible leader. Um, he commands the dressing room. He commands the space in the dressing room. And the boys, I mean, Rod Langway was the face of the franchise. And then an interesting story is Dale David Poyle was a very good general manager still with the Nashville Predators. He traded Gaetan Duchesne, Alan Hallworth, and the Capitals' first-round draft pick in 1987 for Dale Hunter and Clint Malarchuk. The, the first-round pick turned out to be Joe Sackick, so maybe he might have wanted that back. But so we're at, they, but prior to that trade, Rod Langway was the face of the franchise. And then Dale Hunter came to town. First season, they played the Flyers, and Hunter scored the Game 7 overtime winning goal in Round 1 against the arch-rival Flyers. He immediately became the 1A on the face of the franchise, along with Rod Langway. But as a teammate... He's that kind of guy that you wanted on your side also. Like you felt him and I'd, I'd throw Scott Stevens in there at the time were two guys. I was glad they were on my team because they would be tough guys to play against, but you were always glad to kind of guy you want to go to battle with, and, and it's good knowing they're on your bench. Um, Dale would do anything to win, too. That's one thing about him. Like, didn't he? And he's legendary. He'll even fight his brother in that famous Quebec-Montreal brawl with him and Mark squaring off. He'd do anything to win. Um, a real down-to-earth guy, too. Great in the dressing room. Just a good old Canadian boy and hockey player. Like I, I have the utmost respect for him and as a leader and as a human being. I, I really enjoyed my time with him. Just like Steve Seftel, good old Canadian boy from Kitchener, no less, that makes it all this way, that has all of these stories to share about what amounted in retrospect to a very small time in professional hockey. Does this feel at all, Steve, like an entirely different chapter period in your life? It does. And I'll, so come, coming out with my mental illness was a huge relief. I would also say it felt like a huge weight was lifted off my shoulders. And I guess that's part of my strategy for the bigger picture is coming out myself is People are coming up to me now all all the time saying, telling me their stories. And what I'm finding also is it, it's not it's not their second cousin's uncle twice removed. It's in their house. It's where they're dealing with it on a very, very personal level. So for me, it was a real relief. And it does it is a new chapter. And, and a lot of these stories I'm telling you with my mental illness, I never shared them. I, I was, I felt like I didn't achieve I felt like I left, I didn't achieve my goals and and I, that my, I wasn't successful. And because of that, I didn't share my stories. But that was the mental illness talking. And I didn't share any of this with anybody. And now I'm, all these stories are just coming out of me now. And I'm talking to people in, in the community. And like I said, guy, some of the players I played with, friends, family, they're all coming out. And we're just talking about things that I never shared. And I feel like, I got a lot I got a lot of time to make up for, so it is a new chapter, absolutely. A lot of stories to still share. Yeah, yeah. for sure. The big story, and, and that's the reason we're talking today, we've touched on it just kind of in passing, but the book Shattered Ice, which I'm on my second read-through now already because I had the privilege of getting this copy from you some, well, probably a little over a month ago now. Anyway, uh, is the book, Steve, a part of your recovery process? It absolutely was, yes. Um, I was in a dark place about uh, February 2018 is when I was really in a a really difficult spot. I went off work uh, due to the mental illness. Um, 
and I was home alone. My boys are, my son Calvin's a firefighter in Toronto. My son Nick's uh, in his last year university at Laurentian in Sudbury, and then my wife was at work. But I was at home with a, a mind, a racing mind, and trying to, you know, there's a lot of hours to fill when you're just home by yourself. And I jumped, dove into the book. I had just begun writing it in, on a few scribbled some things down on paper a few weeks before that. And then being home alone, I dove right into it with uh, 100%. I really turned it into a job. I was spend when my wife would go to work, I'd start writing. And then when she came home, that's when I'd stop. And then we'd have our evening together, just like you would if you were going to work, which allowed me to really get a lot of uh, work done with the book. But then it became therapy because at the same time I was going to see a therapist. So I'd come home and you know, do, go to therapy, come home, do a little more writing. And an, an interesting story, too, at the beginning is I did have an editor all the way through, and it was. she said to me early on, she said, this book's really dark. She said, is this... And I understood it at the time because I was kind of writing it out of pain, pain and anger and frustration. And she said, is this the book you want to write? Because she said, it's okay, but just make sure it's the book you want to write. And I, I kind of looked at it again, read it, and I wasn't really comfortable with the whole thing or what I had written. So I changed the direction somewhat. I wanted the mental illness to be there, but I wanted the focus to be on the joy of hockey, of growing up in Canada, playing hockey at Victoria Park down the street and Trillium Public School over where I grew up in Laurentian Hills and watching the Rangers. I, I talk about being in the, watching the Rangers in 1982. I sat in the rafters of the broadcast booth right on your stairwell. Absolutely. I sat there. I paid general admission and uh, there, it was standing room only, and I sat on the stairs in 1982 in the F- OHL final prior uh, with the Stevens, Bellows, McInnes crew that went on to win the Memorial Cup. I still, to this day, have this memory of sitting on the, those stairs <laughs> trying to get a glimpse of the game. You didn't get in Don Cameron's way, did you? <laughs> <laughs> no. I made sure I, I gave enough room for the door to open and close. However, <laughs> um, But I wanted the book to be about the joy and the people. I, I, it. It was remarkable to me when I started writing how many people I crossed paths paths with who were either, you know, teammates, friends, coaches, managers, scouts. Like it was remarkable the names that um and I wanted to capture some of that too. They just how we're spinning in this hockey world and we're all kind of bouncing around in different directions and you get traded or you get you move on, you get drafted Whatever it is, your pat you go to high school hockey, your paths cross with different people kind of continuously, and I wanted to capture that all the way through my personal journey, which started on Brandon Avenue in Kitchener and ended um, basically in Baltimore, Maryland, 20-some-odd years later. We talked at the very beginning of this conversation, Steve, around the physical symptoms you felt, that nausea, those knots in your stomach way back in the Ontario Hockey League days. You you talked about the OCD and what that was like, kind of chasing things in your own mind and determining, you know, what mattered or what was real worth pursuing. And then you just talked about when you were beginning this book and how dark it was, uh, but you had a, a mind that was racing, which is what led you into starting to to write this stuff down and, and chronicle it in some way. Is that a description? Can we even put a description on what a mental illness 
feels like. Is that even fair for me to, I don't even know if I can ask the question or if it's a, if, if it's a fair question to ask, but I'm just thinking of some of the things that you've said and if we're able to in any way describe what a mental illness feels like. Well, the, the tough question with that is there's several, I mean, we, we keep using the term mental illness, but it covers so many different, there's many different types of mental illness. So whether it's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, panic disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, depression. So, I mean, we, we use the blanket term mental illness, but they all, they're all individual disease, uh, sickness, right? So um, in my case, though, when it's a panic attack, you feel like you're being chased by a tiger is the best way I would explain it. So that fight or flight response kicks in and you get ele- uh, shorter respirations, elevated heart rate. Um, you feel like you can't breathe. You feel like you're, you're almost uh, that claustrophobic feeling comes in and you have to almost escape your own body, which is uh, that's a horrible feeling to endure. And I guess in my case as well, like I said earlier, you feel like you're in immediate danger, that you're going to be hurt or die. Like you just feel like, and there's no escape. And when that happens, you really just need someone to, to, to be, make you feel safe. And I, I've had many people over this kind of journey as well starting to talk, talk to me about their teenage children and some of their, and say, well, I don't know what to do. Like you were asking, what's it feel like? Or, and they'll say, I don't, yeah, what does it feel like? Or how do I deal with it? I don't know what to do with my son or daughter. And I just say to them, you have to just support them. Be there. You don't have to say a whole lot. You can talk. You obviously got to talk about it. But a lot of times you just need someone there to kind of hold you and just say, you're going to be okay. And I'm here for you. Don't worry. I got you. You know, again, that, that I got your back. And I think what happens when we don't talk about it, we go inward and you deal with it with it on your own and that's what you can't do dealing with it on your own is a recipe for destruction that's why we encourage people to you know that bell let's talk and one thing i learned from my psychotherapist was she said people that suppress their their feeling their their feelings so you get so many traumas in your life and if you suppress those traumas inside your body you have shelves she said to me you have shelves in your body and they're full of glass jars and you only have so many shelves that will allow you to put so many jars in those, on those shelves. And if they're full from all these traumas that you're su- suppressing, eventually there's nowhere to put them and they crash to the ground. And that's, she said to me, when they crash to the floor, people either implode, which is self-harm, they explode, they hurt others, or you get sick. And in my case, I got sick. My body ballooned. So when I went off work uh, in February of 2018, my body just ballooned. My knees swelled. My shoulders swelled. My groins swelled. I could hardly get out of bed because I couldn't move. My body was swollen. It was it was scary at the time because I didn't, I didn't know what was happening. Um, I was having night sweats. I was soaking five T-shirts a night on some evenings and... Uh, like they were, I could wring them out. They were that wet. It was a really scary time for me, and and that's when I started to get the help. So, I guess it's just not fair to say that my symptoms would be what the next person's gonna experience. I think everybody is an individual. I guess that's again when you got to really start talking to your doctor and find out what specifically 
you're dealing with? Because a lot of the symptoms cross over too, but amongst the different mental illnesses is something I've learned. So you really need that medical practitioner to help you get the specific diagnosis. This issue has affected the Ontario Hockey League in relatively recent memory, of course, with the tragic case around Terry Trafford, the former Saginaw Spirit player, and that has led to a number of league-wide initiatives, including Talk Today, where the Ontario Hockey League is really attempting to stay on top of this, be there for its players, have their back. What would your message, Steve, be to a young man in this league today that may be dealing with any sort of demon, any sort of discomfort, any sort of unease? To make sure they communicate and you're not alone. They need to know, number one, you're not alone. You can deal, you're in this with your teammates, your coaches, your parents. Don't internalize it. You're not alone. Look for help out there. And in some instances, you know, the the individual has to take some um, ownership to go get the help. So it's out there. You got to go find it. So that's kind of number one. The other thing is I've watched as my own boys have grown up, and I know from my own experience, we train really hard on our bodies. These kids are in tremendous shape today. They're, they're, I call them like little machines. Like they, they're just incredible. The commitment to training is the greatest it's ever been, absolutely. The commitment to skill development is the greatest it's ever been. I watch even the boys I coach. What the kids do at 10-year-old, at 10 and 11, is way beyond what we were doing with our sticks, at 10 and 11, like the stuff they're doing is, it's remarkable. So they're training, they're taking care of their bodies, they're taking care of their skill development. And number, I think the last piece now is, is eliminating the stigma and starting to take care of the head, whether it's concussions or mental illness. And, and the more I think about that side of it, I, I, always want, I just wonder, how did we not see this for so many years? It seems, now to me, it seems so obvious. And, you know, you get a guy like uh, Daniel Carcillo, Ken Dryden's out there talking, you know, his book Game Change also really moved me when I read it. Um, but I wonder, like, how did we miss this piece? So, But now, finally, we're talking about concussions. We're talking about mental illness. So if you're a young player in the league and you're struggling, if you have headaches, if, you, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you just don't feel right, you don't feel okay, then you have to share that with do not be afraid. And then from the coaching side of it, management, coaches, billets, parents, we got to provide the opportunity to, to have the, allow the kids to speak. There has to be avenues so you can comfortably talk about how you're feeling mentally and that sick, not weak again. You're not weak, even though the sport demands you be tough. And you got, of course, on the ice, you got to play with some grit and determination. We, I think we all understand that. But there has to be a separation that if you're ill then you're not weak, you've got an illness, and that's a separate issue, then you can still be that high-functioning, terrific hockey player that the coaches love and the teammates love and the fans love and still suffer from a mental illness and need some help for it. Does, so just because you need that help doesn't mean you're not that same hockey player that's on the ice 66, 68 times a year. So that would be my message for the young guys, just... Communicate and make sure, know you're not alone. You've stayed in the game. You mentioned before that you coached a team right here in Waterloo uh, last season. Is it important for you to still be involved in hockey? It really is. Um, when I was suffering a couple of years ago, my wife and my 
my wife Lisa and my son Nick said, you got to get back in the rink. And they saw that. They could see it, that I needed that to be part of the healing process. It certainly was. I had lost some of my... The fun was zapped from the game for me over time and dealing with the mental illness. And going back with a group of 10-year-olds a couple years ago, Major Adam, and seeing their smiling faces day after day and how hard they wanted worked and how badly they wanted to be on the ice really brought the fun back and the enthusiasm. And as I said earlier, the arena was my safe place growing up. And that community was my safe place and you know where I got gained so much so much confidence and friendships and all those things that are special in your life. And I I abandoned them even though I thought they had abandoned me. Really I turned my back on them. And it was important to get back because uh I missed it and uh I didn't realize how much till I got out there and started coaching again and just putting my skates on. There's something about just lacing your skates up and taping your stick. I mean, those, and I talk about that in the, the last chapter of the book is co- titled, I Played Hockey, and I take you uh, on a small journey with me to a, a game I was coaching at Grand River Arena in town here. And I, the game, we were on next, of course, part of my hockey routine. I always have to be the first guy to the rink. You know, everybody's got their, I'm always early. My kids and my wife growing up, you always got to leave so early, but that's just part of that hockey routine. You can never be late. But I got to this game. I don't even have a kid on the team. I'm a non-parent coach, and I'm the first guy at the rink for a major Adam game. <laughs> but Kitchener-Waterloo, the minor Adams were playing before us. And I went out there, and I was having a, a rough day. I just closed my eyes, and I listened to the sounds, referee's whistle, that sound you get when puck, pucks hit, past pucks hit the stick. Skates turning, skates stopping. And those sounds just felt so good to my soul that day. And I just kind of basked in it for a few minutes, and it kind of brought my anxiety level down. And I kind of realized at that moment how important the sport had been to me and hockey, how much. I, I say also in the book, it's I guess this is why we're a hockey nation and why hockey people say hockey's in your blood. That's I kind of got it that day, what that means. How are you feeling today? I feel a lot better. Um, one thing with mental illness, too, is it never goes away. So, And that's something else you have to learn to uh, accept and cope with. But by getting the support structure with you know the medical community and then your family and friends, and then plus some training on your own, you learn to deal with it. So I am feeling much better, and I've learned to uh, kind of cope with it and and not to, to to be more grateful for the things I've been given, and you know, living in this great this community has been my home. I was gone for several years, but I'm back now, and been back for quite a while. But just realize that you you know you're lucky. To, we're lucky to be in Canada. I'm I'm, I'm a very lucky person. And I kind of kind of have to remind myself that because for a, a number of years, I wasn't able to see it that way. The old odd has changed a lot since 1982. The latest renovation, well, I mean, the, the old press box where you went up those stairs is long gone. But if you're at the odd, you can't sit on the stairs. There aren't any. But I hope you'll stop by and see us in the booth or come by the rink sometime. Absolutely, I, I will. I still like going down to the odd. I, I still look at the photos. I always make my wife and my boys stop and on the entrance level and uh, look at the photos on the wall and say, hey, remember, I know this guy and I know this guy. And there's an old Krauts picture on the wall of when I played uh, 
on the Bauer Krauts with Murray Freed as the coach and um, Brad and Jamie Schlegel were on that team. We had a really good team. We won the OMHAs and yeah, I still make I still love going to the auditorium. I still the arena kind of smells the same to me, and the feeling the feeling is still the same when I walk the concourse. And uh, yeah, I will absolutely stop in and see you. How does it feel to be sharing this story? It feels it, it, it's a relief. Um, it I if people keep saying to me it's so courageous, and I was having trouble wrapping my head around that at the beginning. I don't know if it's being too humble or. Or maybe not comfortable with it myself because I, I kept it suppressed for so many years. But now I'm starting to kind of see that, and it's been uh, it's made me feel really good about myself because I've really been uh, connected with so many people, friends and strangers, who have just come up to me and thanked me and and said it's really brave of you to do this, and we're so thankful you did. And then they tell me their story and how I'm kind of helping them deal with their own families and. That side of it's been priceless and been really rewarding. It is courageous. Thanks for sharing it with us, Steve. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Okay, Popper, it's official. Are you back in the studio with me for the regular season on September the 20th? Don't tell me no. Can I pass? No. (laughs) (laughs) You're stuck with me for another season. Have you signed your contract yet? Is this done? No, I've asked for one for two months. I haven't got a contract yet. So okay. I don't know what's happening on the 20th. Um, are I coming on the Mike Farwell show on 570 News sometime next week to discuss the upcoming season as we normally do? I think that would be prudent of us to do at some point. Is this, are you, are you just asking for an invitation? Kind of. That's bold. It's like just showing up on my front step when you're not invited. Hey, it's much like the OHL championship. You got to shoot your shot. Kid. <laughs> and, uh, here I am shooting my shot, trying to get an invitation onto the Mike Farwell show. Uh, listenable on 570 News every day. Um, you can also listen to it on the Radio Player Canada app. Popper, let me tell you, on Friday, September the 20th, we will have a return of the Coaches Show on 570 Ooh. News with head coach Jay McKee. And I think following that, it would make sense that you and I sit down for a bit of a chinwag. 519-570-2545. You are officially You are officially invited to be on the show as long as you then promise to show up for the damn game on Friday night, the opener versus Saginaw. Buddy, there's not many times I, I circle maybe three games a season. Opening night, teddy bear game, remembrance day game, so four, and then the final game of the season, because by that point I'm just ready for playoffs to start. I'm gonna th- um, I'm excited. I am too. I was just going to ask you that. I'm going to throw out on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL through the next week. The I want to get, because we, we get asked all the time when the season's beginning about predictions, and we both feel kind of the same way. It's, it's a fool's game. I guess it's kind of fun, but whatever. I'm going to throw out on Twitter and hear what the, uh, the fans of the game are thinking in terms of just, just division winners over the next week, so we can touch on that and then uh, get ready for the regular season, but I'm, I'm excited too. It's it, I'm ready to be back. It's been a long off season. I am too. It's an exciting year on East Avenue. There's a lot of big names returning, but there's also a lot of youngsters that we're not sure. I don't think anybody is sure as to what to expect from the likes of Francesco Pinelli, from the likes of Declan um, uh, McDonald, uh, Simon Matu, all these kids. 
what are they going to do and what opportunity are they going to have? Will Gareffa actually be back in a Rangers uniform? Think about it. What is going on in the Rangers' goal? Is Ingham going to be able to play 57 games again? Is Lucas File ready to take on a bigger role? Is Jay McKee ready to take the next step as a head coach? Is Mike McKenzie going to shoot his shot? Oh, I'm looking at that blue line, too, with the two imports that have been added. What do they look like over 68 games? I'm looking at sophomores like Isaac Langdon and Reed Vallad, and it would be fair to say in a non-critical way, not as a negative, but it would be fair to say with some of the things you just mentioned as well, there are questions that need to be answered. Things kind of need to fall the Rangers' way on paper for the team to be as competitive as many think it will be. I'm not saying these players are not going to be able to perform up to expectation, but we don't know because some of them are playing their very first games in the OHL. Was last year a fluke for Jonathan Yancis? Does Riley Damiani take the next step in his development? Is Greg Morellis a top five, maybe even top three point earner in his overage season in the Ontario Hockey League? Is Michael Vukovic ready to take the next step after being drafted in the National Hockey League? Keep in mind, no veteran big name on the back end like the Rangers have had in the years past. It is his defense core now on this Kitchener Rangers team. How about Donovan Sobrango? The kid was a stud last year. What's he do? Tons of stuff to watch, man. And there's a lot of things that, like you said, need to go right, but a lot of things that I'm excited to see develop throughout the year. Okay, you just forced my hand. Greg Morellis, 100 points this year. And dare I say, that's a no-brainer, right? With 97 last year? I don't know, man. <laughs> it's a big number, isn't it? it? Well, it is a big number. He's definitely capable. I was like, I know it was preseason showcase, but man, did he ever look too good to be in this league? And obviously, with the confidence of being drafted this past year, um, I think that'll do wonders for Greg. But I also wonder about that power play. Andreas Carlson did such a good job last year, but that power play had something that it doesn't have this year, and that is number four quarterbacking it and creating. And that, that cross-seam pass he would always make was so, so pretty. And without him, somebody's going to have to step up. It could be Axel Bergfist on the back end. I really like what I saw from him, the import defenseman. Um, but without those points, like you think, Yancis had 50, yeah, but 25 of them came on the power play. I think he had seven in the tournament showcase or something crazy. But um, I don't know if, Yance, or if uh, Morales hits 100. You can't expect Yancis to score 50, and I don't think you can expect Morales to hit 100. That's a that's a tall order. Well, at 97 last year, and I thought he might make it in the stretch there, but he only got up as high as 97. The other no, name, though, that I can't resist forecasting on right now, and you just mentioned him again, Jonathan Yancis. Was it a fluke last year? I remember watching preseason a season ago thinking, boy, Yancis looks different. Yancis looks good. And I boldly proclaimed then, Popper, he might score 20 this year. He kind of overshot that with the 50 that he scored he's got five in the first three preseason games at the time of this recording i think he can dance with 40 again this year there's no doubt in my mind i don't i don't see why he can't um at least be a threat to get there um i think that'll all depend on what some of these youngsters on this team do a couple of them need to take another step in their evolution as young men and hockey players and um, have a have a great sophomore season like we've seen others have. Um, and then those rookies need to be standout rookies. It'll be interesting to see. 
Somebody else boldly proclaimed that 60 with, was within Yancis's reach. I think that's very bold indeed, but the season looms and it's going to be a fun one. The next episode of this podcast is the regular season episode on September the 20th. We're ready to go. I can't wait. I'm Farwell. I'm Pope. And that is the Farwell and Pope podcast. Get back to work, you bum. Thanks, buddy. This has been the Farwell and Pope podcast, posted weekly. If you have questions, topics, or a story you would like to be covered, simply email mike at 570news.com. The Farwell and Pope podcast originates from the 570 News studio in Kitchener. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.